Teach Me Something, the podcast where I learn about whatever strikes my fancy and then I teach it to you. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. This week, I felt inspired to learn all about venom. What's in it? What's up with anti-venom? Venom resistance? Which animals are venomous? And, and I wanted to know what makes it so interesting to medical researchers. Perfect. Then I think you should teach me something. So let's begin at the beginning. Poison is a toxin that gets into your body when you swallow it, inhale it, or absorb it through your skin. Uh, Poisonous animals tend to be more passive aggressive. They don't really attack their prey. Um, Instead, they transfer their toxins when they're being eaten or when they're touched. Uh, For example, the cane toad secretes toxins from glands on its shoulders. It's a poisonous animal. Uh, It has to be eaten or licked to cause any harm. Poison ivy is an example of a poisonous plant. If you touch it, you can get itchy and a painful rash. Uh, But venom and poison are not exactly the same thing. The difference is in the method of delivery. So kind of like how all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. All venoms are poisons, but not all poisons are venoms. Right. Venomous animals are more active in defending themselves than poisonous ones because venom works only when it's injected into the blood through a bite or sting. So they kind of have to lash out and be more um, aggressive in their own defense. It sounds almost like you're saying that uh, animals classified as poisonous are are poisonous in order to prevent being eaten, whereas animals with venoms use it more for hunting or, or but yeah. not preventing being eaten. Yes, that's the... That's the general case nowadays. Okay. May not be the origin of venom. Sure. But that is the case now. Well, because the origin of venom is when that meteor came down and hit Earth, and then it took over Spider-Man's characteristics for a little bit. I was just waiting. I was just wondering when you were going to make that joke. Yeah. I'm glad. It needed to be somewhere in the venom episode. Yeah. Up front is probably the right place. (laughs) Um, So, venomous animals are like... Um, have have a well their venom let's say is made up of many different toxins um and they need to inject it directly into the bloodstream because if you were to ingest it then your stomach acid destroys all the active compounds in there right um and does and does nothing so you know for this reason some people like to throw around the fun fact that theoretically it wouldn't actually be harmful to drink venom Two problems with this. It doesn't taste good. Number one. <laughs> oh, well, my number one was, I, I think we'd probably get into some legal trouble if we endorsed venom drinking or even just said it wasn't an issue. Um, so I'm going to I'm gonna say don't try it at home. That's okay. issue number one. Two. That is my disclaimer. <laughs> no, okay, sure. Along with the thing that you said. Yeah. Uh, and issue number three. Three. Mm-hmm. Is that the odds of a small wound existing in anywhere from your mouth to your esophagus all the way down to your stomach, like even micro tears and stuff, it just presents an unacceptably high risk that you will get envenomated. And what really are the benefits of swallowing venom? So I repeat, do not try this at home. 
I know you all have venom on your counters just waiting to try. Yeah. And you're disappointed you're that I said it. that. I'm mm-hmm. sure you're really upset. Um, it'll be okay, though. I do want to point out, like everything else, I say this every time, there are exceptions to the rule that venom is delivered by injection. There are some animals like the spitting cobras that can bite and spit their venom. The black-necked spitting cobra can actually aim drops of its venom with perfect accuracy at a range of over 7 meters. It's pretty far. 23 feet for all you imperial folks. Mm, Yes. There's also a species of wasp that can spray venom from its stinger. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, when when animals spray venom like that, they're, they're aiming for the eyes. You have a mucous membrane there where it can get into your bloodstream. But generally, they're trying to blind you permanently. And it's painful and terrible. Occasionally, an animal could be both venomous and poisonous. Sure. Why not? Um, I mean, nature finds a way, right? Mm-hmm. Something's going to have. Yeah. So there's four species of um, the genus Hacoloclina. So those are the blue-ringed octopuses. And they are venomous and poisonous. So venomous when they bite with their beaks and poisonous if you eat them. Or a fish or something else eats them. Um, and, and I'm going to talk a lot more about blue-ringed octopuses later, so I'm not going to delve into the details quite yet. But uh, rest assured, it's pretty cool. So I think I've talked a lot but not really said what venom is. Um, it, well, it evolved from saliva. It became more specialized and more modified as it appeared in different types of animals. Um, it's evolved multiple times separately in different groups. Um, So really what we can say is that venom is a special type of saliva that contains many, many, many different protein compounds, um, the range of which is fascinating. Sure. So there are different types of toxins that can be those protein compounds in venom. Um, The big kind of categories are hemotoxins, cytotoxins, and neurotoxins. Hemotoxins, hemo, blood. blood. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it destroys red blood cells, disrupts blood clotting, um, and basically causes your organs and tissues to start liquefying and dissolving. It's always fun. Um, not really any external cues to this one. You just start melting from the inside out. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's pretty slow acting, usually hemotoxins. So sometimes you would get bitten um, and, and you may not even have symptoms for a few hours. Maybe you didn't even know. That's a little scary to think about. Yeah. Um, so frequently, hemotoxins are used by vipers and, and pit vipers. And in, in addition to killing the prey, part of the reason that they use the hemotoxic venom is to help them digest their food. It yeah. will start to break down proteins in the, in the bite area, um, kind of pre-digesting it for them. Makes sense. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a, unfortunately kind of a slow agonizing death, um, as opposed to the fast agonizing deaths we'll talk about later. So... Uh, I, don't, I really can't tell you which is better. But the cool thing um, is that they can use hemotoxins to diagnose certain diseases of like blood clotting diseases. So, for example, there's a test for lupus. Okay. Called the dilute Russell Viper Venom Time. Oh, great. Where dilute venom is added to the blood sample of the patient. And they, they basically just check to see how long it takes to clot. And compare it against a chart, and they can just they can tell if the clotting factor is is off or not. Um, but rest assured, it's never it's never actually lupus. Oh, and and they don't actually do it within the patient. It's the other part I'm hoping. 
No, that's why I said patient's blood sample, yeah, not just it. patient's blood. Mm-hmm. It just, you know, I had images of this going poorly if instructions were interpreted wrong, interpreted wrongly. Well, okay. Again, don't try this at home, please. Yeah. Um, I'm disappointed in you, actually. I was trying to get you to make a house joke there with all my lupus, and it's never actually lupus, and I was I was hinting so strongly with my eyebrows. I know. What were you, what were you thinking? I was just thinking that house would try it in a patient, and it would work out somehow, so <laughs> I didn't want to encourage that. Yes, he would go over Cuddy's head, hide mm-hmm. it from her. Yeah. Um, anyways, that's really cool. Uh, they also used to use the venom of the Russell Viper as a styptic agent. So when, back when straight razors were like what people commonly shaved with, Mm -hmm. they would use Russell Viper venom to clot small wounds that you got from shaving. Interesting. Cool, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So another category is cytotoxins. Cyto meaning cell. Mm -hmm. So these are toxins that kill individual cells by destroying their cell membranes. Um, Some cytotoxins are specifically myotoxins. So myo muscle, those target muscle cells. Um, some are described as necrotoxins that, you know, just turn you black, rot you, you know. Yeah. Cool stuff. Either way, they start from the bite and travel further and further away with circulation, breaking down cell by cell. The area around the bite will start to necrose, you know, turn black and rot and be yep. gross. Um, cytotoxins will cause, like, a lot of swelling, immediate swelling, immediate pain, pretty debilitating pain. Um, if it goes on long enough untreated, it can start to break down bone cells. Really? Um, which while there isn't necessarily nerves in your bones, it's just not, uh, that's obviously very terrible and not reversible. So the worst case scenario here is how you die is not from your wounds. How you die is from organ failure. Okay. You have a lot of dead muscle and dead tissue that your yeah. kidneys and liver are working very hard to try to filter out. But those part, like, they're just too big, those chunks. So they get stuck and then you die of kidney failure, generally. Um, unfortunately, if you get antivitamin time, you'll probably still end up with permanently damaged kidneys. So not cool. <laughs> Cytotoxins, just like the other ones, are pretty dangerous. Um, these are the toxins commonly found in spiders, like the brown recluse and black widow spiders. Okay. Um, and bees, because apitoxin is a type of cytotoxin. Rest assured, a bee will not yeah. <laughs> give the you permanent kidney um, failure because they, you know, there's dosages and, and strengths to consider here, right? Of course. And types of cytotoxins, like these are just very um, broad groups. So the last kind of broad group is neurotoxins. As you can imagine, these attack your nerves. So they bind the nerve receptors and prevent them, um, prevent the things that are really supposed to bind there from binding. Yeah, like the signals that are meant to... Correct. Yeah. So it causes your whole central nervous system to fail. Um, an envenomated animal would die from paralysis of their diaphragm. So, you know, they're just going to stop breathing because that diaphragm muscle won't work. Um the good thing is that there's very little pain from neurotoxic venom and um, you don't get brain damage from it because the, the molecules are too big to get through the brain or blood brain barrier. Okay. So you don't really directly get um, brain damage from it, but the whole not breathing thing can definitely give you brain damage as you well know. Well, and death. Um, yes. We're assuming maybe you don't die um, because 
with neurotoxic venom, you, you generally don't get any permanent nerve damage. Usually if you get that antivitamin time, you'll be able to reverse things um, pretty pretty well. Um, neurotoxins are common in the venom of like mambas and cobras and those types of snakes. Um, however, permanent or semi-permanent nerve damage can happen with bites from the Asian crate snakes um, because their toxins stay on your nerve cells for much longer. And uh, if you're bitten by the neurotoxic Colette snake from Australia, you actually might get a permanent loss of your taste and smell um, even after you treat the the bite. Yeah. That's because it's still just binding to those receptor sites or just damage them? They're not sure. Okay. Um, something to remember, though, is that venom, you know, isn't made from just one type of molecule. It's made of various proteins. It can actually have hundreds of different toxins. Um two, three hundred different snake venoms. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Sometimes the different toxins can work together to form like a more lethal and more painful compound. And uh, a lot of venomous animals actually have a combination of toxin types in their venoms. So it's not just cytotoxic venom. It's like, for example, the Papuan Taipan snake. Um, its venom actually has neurotoxins, myotoxins, and cytotoxins in it. Mm. Which sounds uh, like really, really super not fun. Oh, yeah. Remind me to never get bitten by the Papuan Taipan. The next time you're considering it, I'll remind you. Appreciate. Appreciate. So, which animals have venom? Let's start at the bottom and work our way up. Kind of. Let's just start with arthropods. So, you know, bugs, insects, all those fun things. Um, so, Edward, I have a question for you. Okay. If you had to guess, venture a guess for me. What's the percentage of spiders and scorpions that have venom? 100%. Why would you guess the right answer? I didn't write a contingency sentence for you if you had said the <laughs> sorry, right answer. Sorry, let me go back. Zero <laughs> percent. Well, that's not believable. It's okay. So, I would like to say wrong, but you got it right. So, good job. Thank you. Um, yeah, 100%. But no worries. Uh, only a few of them are dangerous to humans. Mm-hmm, correct. Like, so, for example, there's over 2,000 known species of scorpions. Only about 40 of them have venom dangerous to humans. Okay. To me, that still sounds like a lot, but I've also never seen a scorpion not in a um, video or cage. Terrarium? I guess terrarium. Um one of the most dangerous, actually, though, are the, the bark scorpions, and they live in the deserts of the southwest United States. So, okay. actually, when you lived in California, you may have inadvertently um, been near these dangerous so. guys. Um, centipedes have modified legs that they inject venom with. Some of their legs inject venom? Yeah. All they of them modify- or some of them? No. Modified okay. legs. To, to, so, like, at the first two. Like, modified okay. yeah, to yeah. be hollow, just like... Um, a fang would be. Um, a lot of caterpillars have defensive venom glands, um, and they that. can inject venom with the, the the bristles on their body called urticating hairs. Fun fact time! Urticating hairs are irritating hairs found in tarantulas as well. Mm-hmm. And the hairs from tarantulas actually used to be used to make itching powder. Those urticating sure. hairs. Yeah. Because they, like, they barb into you. and We learned that at the Bug Zoo. Yeah. Do you remember correct. that? I do. Victoria's I was trying to think of where I remember that from. Super fun. Yeah. 
Um, anyways, itching powder. But the venom in the caterpillars can actually even be lethal to humans. There are some really? caterpillars that are lethal to humans, such as the larvae of the Lonomia moth. Okay. I did not know there were such scary caterpillars. This is the one good thing about living in a place with ridiculously cold winters is big bugs don't make it. So the caterpillars that have venom. Yes. Do the corresponding butterflies also have venom? No, that does not sustain through to their adult form. Right. Most butterflies um, don't have similar adaptations that their larvae do. Okay. Quite different, to be honest. Um... And as you talked about earlier, bees, they use apitoxin, um, which is an acidic venom designed to cause pain. Mm-hmm. Wasps, on the other hand, use an alkaline venom designed to paralyze prey right. so that they can store their prey live for their young to eat. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, but that's grow. also because bees don't eat, like, other insects. My understanding is they don't eat other insects, whereas wasps are predatory. Is that because they don't eat other insects, or do they not eat other insects because they didn't evolve this? You can never, yeah, you, can, you can't say that. Everything would be different if if they ate something different, right? That mm-hmm. drives a lot of adaptations. So, um, the interesting thing is that the venom of bees and wasps can actually have other purposes. It's not just for causing harm. Um, it can contain sex pheromones or alarm pheromones and um, some of it actually has antimicrobial properties as well for their, you know, nests and areas. So sure. um, they use it for lots of ways. Uh, other insects like ants produce venom. Uh, at least one ant species has been shown to use venom topically as a sterilizer. So kind of the same thing, antimicrobial as we are talking about. Um, mollusks, like cone snails and cephalopods, are venomous. And cephalopods, the octopuses, squid, cuttlefish, and, and nautilus. Nautiloids? Nautiloids is the proper plural for that word. Sure. Um, so cold snails. They fire a harpoon made from a modified tooth to inject their venom. Cool. Most of them aren't dangerous to humans, but some are really, really dangerous. Yeah. The geography cone snail is known colloquially as the cigarette snail. Do you have any guesses why that might be? Because it's worse than worse for you than years of nicotine? After being stung, you only have enough time to smoke a cigarette before dying. Oh, okay. Super morbid and kind of an exaggeration, but it was catchy, so they kept it. Yeah, of course. We've known about uh, dangerous venoms like the blue-ringed octopus for quite a long time, but surprisingly, they're not the only venomous cephalopod. In 2019, or 2009, scientists discovered all octopuses, all cuttlefish, and some squid are venomous. Cool. The tiny blue-ringed octopus, though, remains the only one which actually poses a danger to humans. Okay. Um, the other octopus, well, other cephalopods aren't venomous enough or not the right type of venom to, to do anything to us. But it does explain how cephalopods hunt, which I didn't know this, but it's actually been kind of a mystery for a while. Um, scientists had, of course, seen the way they ate, but not the way they killed their prey. They, You know, they've seen them catch prey, they've seen them eat prey, mm-hmm. but they just weren't quite sure how they became dead. Um, so now they know, you know, they use a venom to paralyze. So they, for example, if they're going to eat a clam or any bivalve, so, you know, two mm-hmm. shells joined by a hinge. Yeah. They have to use muscle to keep that closed. Yes. So if they inject a paralyzing agent, then paralyzing no venom, then they together. just open up and the octopus gets to eat what's inside. Easy peasy. Um, 
The venom actually seems to come from a common ancestor, all the cephalopods, and it's it's really diverse throughout their spe- like different species. Um, it also contains similar proteins to other venomous creatures like snakes, but it's it's just convergent evolution, which means there's no relation, no shared origin of the venoms between like a snake and a cephalopod. But there is one for all cephalopods. There is one for all cephalopods. Okay. Correct. Um, but this is kind of puzzling. Like, why are so so many different types of animals having consistently the same or similar venom proteins? It's it's so interesting, um, and we don't really know. One of the leading scientists pretty much has left it at. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that some of the same protein types have been recruited for use as toxins across the animal kingdom, but we just don't know how or why such similar things are able to keep evolving. It's pretty cool. I don't have the answers, though. <laughs> um, okay, I'm sure that what you guys are all thinking is snakes, because that's the most popular thing to think about when you're talking about a venomous animal. Yeah. So there's about 450 species of venomous snakes. Um, snake venom is made in glands below their eye, and then injected with a hollow fang, like a hypodermic needle. Yeah. Um, it's some of the most like varied venom of any animal groups. There is, I mean, just think about it. When you have certain numbers of hundreds of different toxins, the combinations are really endless. Of course. Um, there are several different evolutionary origin points for venom in snakes. There wasn't a common venomous ancestor. This has evolved different times throughout the world, similar venoms. Again, it's pretty crazy cool. There are other venomous reptiles. Yep. Uh, the Mexican beaded lizard, guy the monster, and then possibly the Komodo dragon. But this is very hotly debated. This is a contentious matter. So it, we know that their saliva has anticoagulant uh, compounds. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean it's a venom. Mm. We're not sure. Okay. Is it like just... Really bad saliva? <laughs> yeah, like maybe this represents a step animals go through on their way to evolving venom. First, their saliva is just a little bit anticoagulant and just a little bit numbing and just a little bit this and that. At what point does it become a venom? Poorly defined and we don't really know. Okay. So there's a lot of debate about that one. Uh, but one thing I didn't realize though were like the number of mammals that are venomous. I really uh, could have told you about the platypus. I'm pretty sure that's all I would have guessed. Yeah. So the venomous mammals that we do have are likely among the last like living examples of a more common trait among mammals. So we think ancestrally, a lot more mammals were venomous. Okay. So a lot of the venomous mammals we have are small and close related to the ancestral mammal, which was a lot like a... Shrew? You did it! So I don't know why you made that face. You did it. Ah, uh, yeah. It is a lot like a shrew. Um, shrews, by the way, are venomous. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, they sure are. A lot of insectivores, it seems like. So the European mole has a paralyzing venom, which lets them store their prey for later. Their prey of big, fat, juicy earthworms. Yeah. Uh, the selenodon, both species, is venomous. And if you don't know what a selenodon is, it's like a big-looking shrew. <laughs> okay. I can picture it. They talked about them actually in the show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt on Netflix when at one point one of their causes was to save the toilet rat. Hispaniola, Hispaniolan Selenodon is a toilet rat. 
they're cuter than that name gives them credit for. Or maybe they're so ugly they're cute. I don't know. Um, vampire bats use anticoagulant venom to keep blood flowing for them to drink. Maybe. Mm. Cool. There is also some thought that, is this really a venom? Are okay. we quite there yet? It's kind of a whole lot of debate that doesn't really need to happen. But um, The male platypus, obviously we know, is venomous. Yes. Injects this venom with the spur on its hind foot. Yeah, That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. But because only the male has it, and we've measured that the venom production levels rise during breeding season, it's pretty clear it's used as a, as a weapon against other males, dominance and territory control and all that. Um, but the spur has also been found in most of the extinct non-Therian mammals we've found. So, I will explain. Don't worry. Okay. Therians give birth to live young with no-shelled eggs. So today, the only non-Therians that are living are the platypuses and echidnas. Right. That's what, if you want to differentiate between two groups of mammals, that's what they're called. Therians and non-Therians. There is a lot of extinct non-Therians, and they all had this spur. So that's just more evidence that the venom was a common thing in more prehistoric mammals. Got it. That's cool. So the only known venomous primate is the slow loris. Hmm. They're cute. They live in Southeast Asia, um, and their venom has been known in, in the folklore of those countries for centuries, but was dismissed by Western science until the 1990s, <laughs> not very long ago. Um, so what they do is they lick a special sweat gland in their armpit, and this special sweat mixes with their saliva, and it activates. Cool. The saliva and the sweat are both venomous on their own, though. Okay. It's just that the mixing becomes a more powerful venom. Super venom. Ex- sure. Yeah. Um, and they mostly use it in conflicts with other slow loruses, but they also use it as an anti-parasitic agent as well. Seems to be a pretty common thing. Maybe maybe that is what spurred a lot of the initial evolution of, of venom is antimicrobial stuff. Okay. That's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. So there's lots of other animals that have venom too. Um, many marine invertebrates like sea anemones and sea urchins, some corals actually, Portuguese man yeah. wars and, uh, and jellyfish, of course, yeah. have venom. The box jellyfish has been called the most venom creature, venomous creature in the world. I've heard that one before. Some of them, yes, yes, you almost certainly have heard this before. Let's be clear though, most box jellyfish don't have dangerous venom. Really? There's only a few species. It's just that those are really, really bad. Like the Irukandji one in Japanese oceans. Guilty by association. Well, because some of them have cytotoxic venom that causes death in two to five minutes, it kind of makes the whole thing. They all have a bad rap. Um, Thousands of species of fish are venomous. Thousands and thousands. Stingrays, sharks, chimeras, catfish, lionfish, scorpionfish. I I mean, I'm not going to go on. (laughs) There's thousands. But uh, the most venom fish venomous fish known is the stonefish so stonefish venom is is very fatal to humans if it's not treated um and as their name implies they kind of look like a rock perfect they can also survive on the beach out of water for at least 24 hours wow okay as such they are liable to be stepped on yeah often which is scary um some indigenous australians perform in ceremonies and part of the ceremonies involves reenacting the death of someone who stepped on a stonefish. So it's um, tale as old as time, apparently. Right. 
Um, in amphibians, we have some venomous salamanders that can actually inject venom with a specialized pointy rib bone that sticks out of their side. They've evolved specialized rib bones to puncture um, Fun. predators or I think probably predators, yeah. Two Brazilian frog species actually have like tiny spines around their skulls Okay. Um, that can inject venom. I'm assuming if they're being predated yeah. upon from, from above. Um, okay, so if this many animals have evolved venom, it only makes sense that a lot of animals would evolve some kind of defense. Venom of resistance. Yeah. Obviously, the first line of defense is not to get bit. And there's so many adaptations to that, I'm not going to really talk about it. Um, but having innate venom-resistant capabilities in your body is got to be useful. So story time. In 1976, there was a student at Texas A&M feeding the snakes in the lab, and and they gave the Western Diamondback rattlesnakes a wood rat. Sure. The snake bit it. But it was made of wood, so... <laughs> so now they have it. That's right. That's exactly right, except for the part where it was made of wood. Uh, so then the scientists <laughs> decided... That was pretty interesting. And they wanted to do it again. So they did it again and again and again and again. And what they found was that wood rats not only held their own against the snakes, but they also sometimes scratched and bit them to death. Well, this is how scientists discovered that the wood rat was immune to venom. Right. Not that that was the first animal we'd ever discovered that was immune to venom, but... Um, but I would assume that this is a case of like that animal is immune to that mix of toxins and that there's still likely venoms that would like being resistant to some venom doesn't make you make you resistant to all venom. Correct. Is, okay. Very correct. Because there is literally no reason for them to evolve, evolve protection to something that wasn't going to live near them. Of course. So the rattlesnake and the wood rat share common habitats. So yes, they... They have specifically evolved protection to that snake and probably a few more just due to coincidence in shapes of things. Sure. Um, but yes, there actually is a lot of a lot of animals that are venom immune. Um, the honey badger is probably the most famous example. Um, but there's numerous critters that have shown this honey badger-like resistance to the effects of venom. So as far as mammals go, um, opossums, hedgehogs, skunks, ground squirrels, pigs, even more have shown venom resistance. Um, the thing is, though, that venom resistance isn't limited to animals that are preyed upon by venomous creatures. It's actually way more common in animals who eat venomous animals than in those who venomous animals prey on. Predators of venomous animals are more likely to be venom resistant. Because they're likely to get bitten or stung or injected in the process of being a predator. Well, I mean, why would that resistance evolve more in predator than prey? Right. Because, let's say, you know, you're a predator. And the number of dishes you can eat at the buffet gets a lot larger if you can eat the spicy food. Yeah. The other animals are afraid of. You just got to figure out a way to neutralize the hot sauce. I didn't make that up. That was online. And okay. I would love to source it, but it was an anonymous post. And I thought it was a great analogy. That's, that's you know, that's the internet for you. I don't know who wrote it. Kudos to you, person out there. Um, so, like, grasshopper mice are immune to bark scorpions, which we talked about, which they eat. Um, 
honey badgers and mongooses eat mm-hmm. venomous snakes. They yeah. they have venom resistance. Yeah. Um, fan-fingered geckos are immune to the venom of the yellow scorpions that they hunt. So again, you're right. They would only have resistance to these specific animals that they often eat. Mm-hmm. Because it's because it, it's not the inject or the uh, ingestion itself that's likely the problem. It's, it's the, the hunting of an, a likelihood of being injected. Yes. Right. Makes sense. So, um, besides mammals and, and lizards and those, um, there are plenty of snakes that are immune to snake venom. And sure. in, in some cases, it, it's probably that this prevents them from inadvertently committing suicide when they miss the mouse and hit themselves. Like, you know, how you accidentally bite your cheek sometimes while you're eating, mm-hmm. but not you're venomous, so you're dead. Yeah, and those are big teeth. That's uncool. Yeah. So, that's an option. But in other cases, they think that the immunity points more towards the condition of snakes eating other snakes. Okay, sure. And that led them to the possibility that snake venom first evolved as a defense and not a hunting tool. Really? And diversified from there. Possibility is what I say. Again, just like so many things I've talked about in biology so far, we don't really know a lot. It's so complicated. (laughs) Um, But... I just want to want to mention a little bit more though about the opossum, which I mentioned earlier as a venom resistant animal, um, because some scientists think that the blood of the opossum is the key to fighting the effects of snake bites worldwide. You know, they have anti-venom blood. Um, the research researchers have discovered the exact molecule in the blood that can neutralize snake venom. So they mixed that molecule with snake venom and injected it into mice at varying concentrations and the mice were all completely fine cool so they're confident it's this molecule it's this it's this peptide it works against several different snake species like the diamondback rattlesnake and russell viper that we've mentioned a few times um and and scientists have actually known since the 1940s that the virginia opossum had some level of immunity to snake venom um but but now that we've got this specific peptide isolated we could hopefully one day mass produce it as an inexpensive and universal antivenom for use in the developing world. Um, mm-hmm. Cause as I'll talk about later is it's quite an issue, but of course some scientists are less optimistic. Sure. I mean, the arguments that because snake venom has hundreds of different compounds, then you'd have to deactivate too many things to have like a universal antivenom, uh, at least in this way. And they're just grumpy. <laughs> There's always curmudgeon scientists out there grumping on everyone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the other thing is that specific compounds in snake venom actually can vary not only because of the type of snake, but also the age of the snake and the sex of the snake and maybe even what part of their own territory they live in. Okay. They can differ. So that makes it even more tough to come up with anything universal. Um, like, you know, if, if the opossum compound worked on the Russell Viper snipe, like, sample in the lab, and then you walked out and one from the wild bit you and you died. Like, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the Russell Viper actually, by the way, kills thousands of people a year in India. So really? having a better way to produce an antivenom for that snake would be super. But what about us, Everett? We don't have antivenom blood. We don't have any resistance whatsoever. So got to turn to modern medicine, which is not actually that modern, and make some antivenom. 
Um, because the origin of antivenoms, as we now know them, actually lies with the French doctor, Leon Charles Albert Calmet, which is not a very French way of saying his name. I didn't yeah, put an accent on any of his, on any of those names, but it would be worse if I tried. Um, he was a protege of Louis Pasteur, actually. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool. So in 1886, he was working in, um, what's now Vietnam, and there was a devastating flood. Like, it was just terrible. And one effect of the flood, though, is it forced, like, huge numbers of the monocled cobra to take refuge in a, in a, this village near Saigon. And so in a very short time, they had bit at least 40 people and four were already dead. Um, so Dr. Comet like, wanted to help. And he was inspired by the innovative new technology of vaccines and was able to create an antivenom to the cobra venom. Cool. Um, the first scorpion venom was created in Mexico in 1906 by Daniel Vergara Lope Escobar or Lope. Again, I'm, oh man, names are tough. Other languages are they tough. Are. Okay. How does antivenom work? Well. <laughs> Not always. Let's look at an example. Okay. Okay. So the death stalker scorpion. Hmm. It's one of the deadliest scorpions in the world. Shocking. I know he wasn't named ironically. Its venom contains a compound called chlorotoxin. Your muscle cells need chloride ions to move in and out to properly operate. Chloride ions get in and out through very specific channels only for chloride ions. As the name suggests, chlorotoxin is going to block these channels off. It's perfectly shaped to be able to do this. And if there's any deviation, it wouldn't be able to fit anymore. Um, if it does block it though, that means that chloride ion can't move back and forth and your muscle cells can't relax. They are permanently tensed, paralyzed, and then you're dead. So an antivenom contains antibodies that are specifically produced to stick to a certain toxin. Yep. Changing its shape, which makes sure they don't fit on the opening anymore. It's not an exact analogy, but you can think of it like trying to plug an electric cord into a socket. And the antibody is that wad of gum a toddler's jammed into one of the holes and you can't fit the prongs in it anymore. So antivenom can't reverse the effects of venom once they've begun. It can't remove something that's already bound. Right. But it can prevent it from getting any worse until your body can come clear up the, the mess. Um... Every venom has so many toxins, again, so antivenoms have to also have so many different antibodies. This and, and the whole method of production and, and, and storage, they need to be stored in you know, cold spaces, they expire, all those things. Yeah. It, it's really expensive and it's really complicated to do. Um, but do, do you have any idea how it's made since I did mention vaccines? Well, I'm Do you assuming, have a theory? I mean, if we're taking, I don't remember all the terminology, but like live vaccines, it's like weakened components or, or weakened bits of, you know, whatever you're trying to vaccinate against. And so I'm assuming that most antivenoms are either uh, diluted or partially destroyed venoms that are then injected into the person. You have like... Uh, half of it, you have some good theories. So, f- step one is to get the venom. 
Good. So for this, you need to milk a venomous animal. Mm-hmm. That's where they like, take the cloth that. over the jar <laughs> and they put the yes. the snake and yes. have it bite through the cloth. Yeah. Or whichever animal. Um, but before that, you need to catch it. Yeah. So you could just delegate that task to the grad student in your lab or the intern or whatever. Or, or better reasonable. yet, you could hire a local who knows what they're doing. Yet yeah, it's dangerous. It's super dangerous. So step one of making an antivenom is super dangerous and therefore expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you also need a lot of animals and a lot of time. Like for reference, if we're talking about snake antivenom, depending on the type of snake, it could take you tens of thousands of milkings. To get a pint of venom. Okay, but how much anti-venom does a pint make? Don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't able okay. to find that. But that statistic was all I could find. Good question, though. The next problem we face is that humans don't produce the proper antibodies when we're exposed to venom. We don't make them. So you can't d- inject diluted venom and hope that we learn how to make those antibodies because we don't. Okay. We've never had to evolve that trait. So we need to use animals. Okay. Horses, goats, sheep, donkeys, rabbits, cats, chickens, cows, llamas, and the surprising one, sharks. Even sharks will do it. But do these animals have that anti-venom antibody that they create? No. Oh, okay. They don't have anti-venom blood, but they do produce antibodies in the presence of venomous toxins that we don't make. So here's where you were coming in. You dilute it. Dilute the venom and inject it into the animal. And then you're also going to inject inject something called an adjuvant. And an adjuvant is something that improves the immune system's response. Um, They are, you may or may not have ever heard of them, but they're in every vaccine. Um, They can be different, different things can act as as adjuvants, so like we do it so that you can take like less doses of a vaccine or a less high dose of a vaccine um, because we're kind of just also kicking your immune system into overdrive while we're giving you this agent, whatever it is. So just as an example, we have known about adjuvants since at least 1926 because we discovered that aluminum had adjuvant properties and it's still one of the most commonly used ones. And no, we're not injecting you with aluminum, pure aluminum in a vaccine. It's usually an aluminum salt. It is interesting, though, that we don't really exactly know how adjuvants influence the immune system. Well, Um, they describe nouns. (laughs) Oh, dear. There are some solid theories. There are. And likely answers, but the immune system is so complicated. We just don't have the full picture. So it's like, we're like, this will help. I don't know why. Take this. Sure. <laughs> so we put the venom in, we put the adjuvant in. Um, and the last thing, so the animal will have their robust immune response. And we will filter their blood and take those antibodies that they made out. And bam, you've got an anti-venom. Not, not so hard, just, just expensive and dangerous. And time-consuming, by yeah, the sounds of it. exactly. Which is totally what you have when you're injected with venom. It's time. <laughs> so it's a lot of work, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to have them ready before someone gets bit. So it's a lot of work just to get an antivenom for one specific species. Um, in a two- 2016 study, researchers picked nine of the more dangerous types of venom they could find. 
They filter them to isolate the most toxic elements in each of those venoms. And they combine all of them into like a super venom. And then they diluted it and injected it into a horse. Oh, good. The horse is fine. Don't worry. Okay, good. <laughs> this is just the normal process of making an anti-venom. Mm-hmm. They diluted it. So the results are an anti-venom that was able to neutralize the venom from 18 different species of African and Asian snakes. Cool. Snakes in other locations probably like globally would have had less likely of a chance to be neutralized, less related venoms, but it's still very useful in certain parts of the world to have something like that. Um, Obviously the universal anti-venom is the ultimate goal, but the basic process of making anti-venoms hasn't really changed for more than a century. We need some kind of new technology. We've been starting to explore new methods that could help us manufacture drugs to bind the toxins or farm antibodies from bacteria instead. Um, And there's also a few other really complicated sounding methods being explored that I did not want to even try to digest. But it's cool. And there's some stuff coming down the pipeline. Cool. And now I want to talk about the blue ringed octopus again because there is no anti-venom for the blue ringed octopus and no one is thinking any antivenom could be made. Blue ringed octopus uses tetrodotoxin and there is no known antidote to tetrodotoxin. Um, It's a powerful sodium channel inhibitor. So just like chlorotoxin blocks your chloride channels, tetrodotoxin blocks your sodium channels, which you also need for muscles, but like a step before that. So you need the sodium for your nerves to tell your muscles to move. Okay. So still you're being paralyzed just through a different set of steps. And you stop breathing and you die. Um, and it really doesn't take much tetrodotoxin to paralyze your diaphragm. So a single 25-gram octopus, which by the way is less than the weight of a typical slice of bread, has enough tetrodotoxin to suffocate 10 adults. It's a thousand times more deadly than cyanide is. Wow. It's also what you find in pufferfish, mm-hmm. which is probably why you're nodding right now. Everyone's saying, I've heard of this. Exactly. Because in shows and movies, they always talk about tetrodotoxin and like pufferfish sushi or something. Right. Or make it so I murder someone with some tetrodotoxin or something. Um, but there's good news. If a blue ring octopus bites you, you just have to get to the hospital before you stop breathing. So in 30 seconds? I don't know. You have a little bit longer than that. And, you know, if the paramedics can get there in time and keep you supported on life support and you get to the hospital and they hook you up to a ventilator, 15 hours, you're going to walk out of there just fine. Okay. Perfectly fine. No permanent damage. Wow. You just need something to breathe for you until the toxin wears off. Unlike most other venomous animals, the blue-ringed octopus gets its venom from microbes living in their salivary glands that make it for them. I see. Um, Also unusually, I'm going to explain here how they're both poisonous and venomous. Once this toxin's made, they actually distribute it throughout their body and and even in and on their eggs to keep them safe. So that's why they can both bite you and be poisonous if you eat them. Venomous and poisonous. Interesting. Okay. Got it. Um, but there are, there are some issues that come along with anti-venom. So this is really, unfortunately, kind of a social justice issue. As with many, many things, 
the developing nations have higher amounts of issues with venomous animals and lower access to healthcare for it. Oh, yeah. Um, due to short shelf life, currently a lot of antivenom stocks have expired globally. And pharmaceutical companies don't want to make them anymore. It's expensive and time-consuming, and they're actually being undercut by some cheap, ineffective stuff. So in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, they have a lot of venomous animals, a lot of venomous snakes. Um, and there are very few antivenoms available due in part to a lack of regulation. So the market got flooded by a lot of unvetted antivenoms from people just looking to make a quick buck. Um, they turned out to be inferior or they don't work at all. Right. But they were offered really cheap. So they effectively priced pharmaceutical companies out of the business there. And pharmaceutical companies thought, fine, if we can't make a profit or or even like there's no point in us doing this. So they've stopped yeah. manufacturing. So it's not even that they won't sell it. They're not even making it. Understood. Um, again, which is, which is an issue. A big, big issue. Because now they're stuck with only antivenoms that barely work if they work at all. Even in the U.S., though. It's a problem. So the USA has no supply of coral snake antivenom now. It expired in 2009, and it was no longer being made. They're looking to Mexico. Um, there's one place that might manufacture it for them starting soon. But yeah, there's been nothing there for that long. Um, so it's not just developing nations that have this problem. 5.4 million people each year are bitten by venomous snakes. That's just snakes, not including other venomous animals. Um, and 100,000 people die every year from snake bites. It's a lot. It, it is a lot still. When we have technology, we just haven't really developed the technology to make it better yet. Um, another thing to think about is that antivenoms are actually quite dangerous dangerous relative to other drugs we give people. Yeah, I could see that. Um, they, they cause allergies left, right, and center. So you can get an allergic uh, syndrome called serum sickness. And anaphylaxis is really common. Mm -hmm. But... It's a known issue. So doctors and nurses are there on standby. They'll give you the antivenom and they're prepared to deal with that fallout. And they got the drugs and the paddles and they'll get you through it because this is a really a risk-benefit analysis type of thing. I mean, you're taking a risk with the antivenom, but your other option is death or yeah. disfigurement or you know, debilitating pain. Yeah, it's, you have no good options is what I'm saying. So on that note, I do want to talk about the proper first aid for venomous bites. Um, there's that age old question, right? Suck the venom out, apply a tourniquet to stop it from spreading, squeeze blood from the wound to get as much out as you can. Let's start with a question for you. Get another question on the spot. How long do you think it takes for blood to get like a whole cycle of your body? Like from maybe a snake bite on your ankle back to your heart, and back to your ankle again. I assume it's like under 90 seconds. Yeah, it's 45 seconds. So all of those other techniques are, are I'm not going to say stupid. They're, they're really stupid. But how are you to know that unless you listen to a podcast such as this? Yeah. Don't do it. Um, sucking on the wound just increases the risk of infection and can cause like extra tissue damage around... Yeah. The, around the wound. Tourniquets are super dangerous. I mean, they in cut general, off blood yeah. flow and they leave the venom concentrated in that area of your body a little more. So you probably will lose your limb. Um, 
And, and what I really learned, as you were probably just saying, is that unless you specifically have been trained in tourniquet use, you literally should never, ever, 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 ever use them. Ever. They are almost always a bad idea. Yeah. We've just, again, the media has kind of portrayed this picture of like, oh, you have a wound? I'll just put a tourniquet on and it won't bleed anymore and then you'll be okay. In reality, that limb will probably die if you mm. do that. Um, so that's what not to do. But what do you do? So it's really just important to get the ambulance involved as soon as you can and, and leave the wound alone. You're supposed to remove any tight clothing in case of swelling. Don't take any caffeine or alcohol. It'll increase your heart rate. Don't take any drugs or pain relief. I mean, it won't touch it anyways. Mm-hmm. And they don't want any interactions. So just don't. Um, it's really smart to try to remember what the snake looks like or maybe take a picture on your phone camera. Do not try to catch the snake. Never do that. Never, ever, ever. <laughs> but any description is probably helpful. Um, unless you live where we do and there's literally only one venomous oh, snake. Yeah. It was a rattlesnake. Case closed. Um, it's worth noting that up to 25% of bites from venomous snakes are actually dry bites, though. So they can really? control. Yeah. They can control how much venom they, that they release when they bite. Mm-hmm. And so if they know that you're too big to eat and they're just trying to scare you off, then often they won't inject venom. And while it'll still be extremely scary, you'll probably be okay. Yeah. The last thing I really wanted to talk about, because it's so cool, is the current medical interest in venoms. So there's been um, scientific articles published as early as 1947 detailing some thoughts on cobra and bee venoms being used as painkillers. So we've thought for a while that venom has some promising pain relief possibilities, but let's be honest, it doesn't seem very profitable for pharmaceutical companies to develop new drugs when their opioids are making them so much money and none of them want to rock that boat, right? Of course. As soon as one of them tries to develop a new product, they're all going to have to. So, uh, so they kind of play nice and they're sticking with what they got so far. But, you know, then along comes the opioid epidemic. And though it's taken way, 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 way too long to address it at almost any level, there is finally an impetus to creating new types of pharmaceutical pain relief. And and Venom has become a a pretty big player in this scene. So the Black Mamba, a sub-Saharan venomous snake, has a Venom cocktail that, that can kill a human in 20 minutes. But while they were looking for opioid alternatives, scientists discovered two proteins in the venom. Um, they named them mumbalgins, black cool. mumba, mumbalgins, um, which, and they can block pain in mice as effectively as morphine does, but with fewer side effects. Cool. I'm not sure I need to explain why we badly need alternatives to opiates, but quick overview is that many people grow tolerant to them, so they require higher doses over time. There's terrible side effects, you know, constipation, nausea, and, uh, you know, addiction, <laughs> drug dependency, yeah. all these things. Um, so as the name implies, opioid drugs bind to opioid receptors in your body. That's how they reduce pain. These mumbalgins, um, they're going to bind and inhibit acid-sensing ion channels. These channels are involved in pain transmission. If they're blocked, the pain doesn't transmit. Okay. But that's all we got. Their role is not very well understood. They're still studying it, all of that. But it's pretty cool because they they found that if they injected mice with these mumbalgins, 
that they could withstand hot water on their tails and paws for twice as long as the untreated mice. And that the snake proteins reduced hypersensitivity to pain following tissue inflammation as well. Um, and, and they did discover that the mice developed a tolerance for mumbulgins, same okay. way as opiates, but it was much, much less, much, okay. much smaller. And, uh, and they did, they didn't have a slowed respiratory rate at all. So that's a big problem with opioids is, is that they can slow your breathing and slow your respiration. So let's say if you're in hospital and you're not doing well for other reasons, then they might not be able to even give them to you because it's too dangerous. So the mobulgins don't have that effect. Um, and cool. obviously the studies in mice. So first thing we need to do is make sure it's the same in, in humans. Right. And early tests do suggest that mobulgins can block at least some of our acid sensing ion channels. But what we have now... Um, we have we have a few drugs. So ziconotide, ziconotide, I don't know. Sure, it's a pain reliever that's a thousand times as powerful as morphine, and they actually isolated it from the venom of the magician cone snail, Conus magus. Oh, yeah. It was approved by the FDA in December two thousand four. So we've had this one for a while. And as of 2017, there were actually six FDA-approved medicines that were derived from venom proteins. One of them has been around for a really, really long time, actually. In 1981, the FDA approved Captopril for high blood pressure and other heart conditions. And uh, that kind of shows us that the pain-killing components of venom aren't the only useful ones, medically speaking. Sure, yeah. There's even more there to explore and that we've probably known about for a while. <laughs> There are other drugs right now in clinical and preclinical trials that are trying to treat like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, depression, epilepsy, all these things from, from venom. A peptide isolated from a Queen Victoria cone snail is very effective in treating post-surgical and neuropathic, so nerve pain. Okay. Um, and it actually has been shown to accelerate recovery from nerve injuries. Cool. Mm-hmm. More cone snails, though. That geography cone we talked about, the cigarette yeah. snail, and the tulip cone snail, they actually secrete a type of insulin to cause hypoglycemic shock in fish. Interesting. Which is how they paralyze them. Okay. And they're the only two species that we know of to use insulin as a weapon, which is... It's like they don't know what use it could be, but it's so special and so unique, and insulin's so important to us. That is very, very intriguing, and biochemists are picking that one apart as we speak. Makes sense. Um, venom proteins from sea anemones, spiders, scorpions, all of those have potential biomedical uses. So there are really some exciting medical advances to be made in this field, and, and along with those advances, hopefully we can address some of those social justice issues um, and get some stable and reliable antivenoms and treatments to people in developing countries where they need it the most. Um, and, there, and there's so many untapped resources. There is an estimated 18,000 undiscovered vertebrate species and 5.5 million undiscovered invertebrate species, not to mention the number of animals that are discovered but not examined or named even. Right. Uh, so I'm, I'm really hopeful that we need to save as many of these as possible from extinction, save you know the habitats that they live in, all the rainforests, all those things, but, but I think we could find some even more amazing and useful tools for application here. Um, so that's all for this week's episode about Venom. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. 
and I really hope you learned something new.